All right. Hey, it's so good to uh, be with you all. I feel like um, I'm at a cafe. I'm going to play a song for you, but uh, <laughs> I cannot do that. All right. Well, um, I wanted to, um, as Pastor John briefly mentioned, but I wanted to introduce our good friend um, Jeff King. He's the president of International Christian Concern. And um, they do a lot of work in bringing awareness um, to the persecution that's happening, that's been happening throughout history. We get a little glimpse of it here and there, and they do so many uh, wonderful things. They're hosting a conference that's coming up in June, uh, second and third as well. Um, Pastor John's gonna, after service, uh, there's some flyers with information on it, and you could sign up and all that, but um, I'm just encouraged. Um, he, he had us at Brea, we, we shared at Brea and just drove down, but he had us, um, some people in tears, just sharing about his heart and what's happening there. So we're gonna spend a little bit of time um, hearing about this. And, um, and so, yeah, Jeff, welcome. Um, uh, you know, and uh, um, we wanted to, uh, you know, this story of how you got called into this position as the president of International Christian Concern was one of those, goosebumps like, you know, when I heard it. And I, I thought you could just get us acquainted with you and you've been doing this for 14 years and how, how'd you end up doing this? How'd you become president? You know, maybe you could share that with us. Absolutely. So <clears throat> in a former life, I used to be a, a banker and uh, came out of school, went into corporate banking and then into mortgage banking. And then I got a, a very clear call to go to Campus Crusade for Christ after I swore I'd never go to Campus Crusade for Christ. Everyone knows that prayer, right? You never say never to the Lord because that's exactly where you're going. So, but anyway, so I spent 11 years with Campus Crusade for Christ and, um, <clears throat> you know, you have to raise your own financial support when you're in ministry with them. And after um, probably maybe year nine, last two years or so, my support all fell apart. And I was doing all these marketing tricks and I'd have the vice president write letters for me. It was like nothing would work. And um, so during that time, you know, I'm praying and praying and finally realized, I'm like, you know what, the Lord's pulling me out of here. And I finally saw that, but he wasn't telling me where I was going. It's just that's normal life, right? And as you're sharing, we're going to pass up these flyers. So you'll be getting the flyers and okay. the conference. But yeah, please, sorry, go ahead. No problem. So, but I know the Lord's moving me somewhere and I don't know where, and I, you know, really changed my life to be in ministry, and that was my heartbeat. So on the one hand, I didn't like being poor. I was like, I could go back to secular work, but I really want to do kingdom work. And so during that time, I came out here to SoCal and for work with the Jesus film. I was just on a, on a trip, I came out, and we were staying at Robert Schuller's uh, retreat center. And during the night, I had a dream. And in this dream, I was talking to an imaginary businessman. And um, I was talking to him on the phone and I decided to go by his office. So I go by his office and he operates a business out of his home and his workers are all standing on the front yard. And so I pull up and I roll down the window. I'm like, hey guys, where's Bill? And they're like, Bill's gone. And, but it's kind of ominous. I'm like, well, where is he? They're like, no, he's gone, gone, he's dead. I say, he's not dead, I was just talking to him five minutes ago. Yes, he is, no, he's not, yes, he is. This is all the dream. And then they get agitated in the dream. They say, I'm telling you, he's dead, he dropped dead, we're really scared, do you wanna run the business? And I'm like, I don't know, what about this Nat? That's all I remember. So I wake up, and you know, I'm on California time, but coming from the East Coast, so someone, my phone was turned off, and someone called me during the night, it's one of my supporters, 
And she's never called me in 11 years, so I'm a little curious. I wake her from the dream, I see, I call her back. So I get on the phone with her and she says, um, my husband and I are connected with this organization and their founder just dropped dead and all I can think is you're the guy that's supposed to run this business, are you interested? And I was like, whoa. Um, and I always say, you know, I have the gift of spiritual discernment so I could put two and two together and figure out from the dream and that phone call that the Lord was leading me to international Christian concern. And so I said, that's how um, I landed in it. You can imagine how strange that is because you, the next step is you call the board. I don't know these guys, I don't know anything about them. And I called the head of the board and he was a corporate attorney and you could see, you know, I could see him in my mind. He's at his desk, he's like, yeah, yeah, who are you? What are you, okay, yeah, we're totally distracted. And I can't tell him, you know, you can't say, hey, by the way, I just had the dream and I am the man, you're supposed to hire me. Cause then you get put in the wacko category. So he's like, I had to keep that all hidden until he finally hired me. I'm like, guys, I've been dying to tell you something, so. Oh, I mean, that's, um, that's about as clear as it gets, you know, from God. Um, you know, we're talking about persecution and, and just a lot of things that we're, is really neat on, I think, God's hand upon us as we're going through Philippians. We're in chapter one. I got connected with Jeff. They wanted to do a conference. Let's talk about this. And here is someone who is in jail writing and we're reading that and studying that together. So this is tied in well. You know, when we think about persecution, martyrs, we think of the picture you may have is like, a, you know, a scene from the Gladiators movie, um, something that happened in the, in the Roman Empire back in the first, second century. And uh, we don't think of it today. Like, you know, we, we may get glimpses of it and we don't really think, is it still happening? Um, we're, we're busy trying to figure out where's the shortest way to get to work and the things I got to do. And I thought you could just talk to us a little bit about this broad picture of persecution of Christians mm. today, just because of their faith and what's yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening all over, but the press largely won't report it unless there's some big geopolitical overlay. So, you know, big cases have been, there was a case in Afghanistan where, where there's war going on and we're pouring billions of dollars in there to create freedom. And they decided to put a, a Christian on trial and to charge him and sentence him to death. Uh, or in, in Iraq, you know, so when there's a geopolitical overlay or some bigger story, uh, there's a chance of that story getting out. But in general, the press doesn't touch it. And so we're every day pumping out accounts and news of persecution on our website, persecution.org. Um, <clears throat> but in the old days, in the recent old days, persecution was all about Marxism. And so the old Marxist states were the story in persecution. So if you kind of go around the globe, you'd say, you know, it's Cuba, um, and then certain African states, and then you had Vietnam and China and North Korea and Laos. And the truth is that most of those countries are going in the right direction. Um, it's not that there's no persecution, but it's tamping down, except for North Korea. It just stays bad, horrible. Um, but in general, that was the picture of uh, persecution until the old Soviet Union fell. Now, starting in the 1970s, as you know, the wealth of the world started flowing into the Middle East uh, through oil. So they've, you know, formed a consortium and said, we're going to drive the price up and massive amounts of money started coming in. And they used massive amounts of money, especially the Saudis and the Gulf states. And they used some of that, a lot of it, a lot of those funds to radicalize the Muslim populations around the world. And they were doing a couple things. They put madrasas, boarding schools, where they radicalize kids all over the world, radical mosques, and then they have Wahhabi preachers, which is the purest form of Islam. 
it was Muhammad's form. And they bring these guys back to Saudi Arabia and train them and send them back out. And so over time, this was going on for 20 or 30 years and no one knew about it. It was in the dark. And then in 1998 in Indonesia, there was a, a small fight between some Christian kids and um, some Muslim kids. And the Christians in Indonesia are largely uh, uh, Chinese descent. And this small fight turned into a big thing and the Muslims said, we need to go on jihad. And they called out, they went throughout the, the country. They were putting promotional videos. They were having rallying uh, uh, meetings in church where they come in and they give you white robes. It looked very much like the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, a thousand people marching on the streets to go kill and rave and murder, uh, going through the streets. And then we have recruiting videos from inside the mosques. Be bold. Allah wants us to do this. You may die. Have no fear. You know, and they went and they pillaged and they raped and they murdered. And I was in there during this event. And, um, you know, I one village I went to, this was very normal. It was a mountain village and there was one road up the mountain and the Christians blockaded. They felled trees and blockaded. And so the bad guys, the crazies, came in with government bulldozers and pushed them out of the way with government fuel tanks. They come in, they raid the whole village, take everything out, and then they come in with the kerosene tankers and spray all the homes and then whoosh, light the match, go. And when I first came to uh, ICC, you know, I had to kind of go through the files of the ministry and figure out what was happening where and looking at the countries of persecution. And I came across these pictures from Indonesia and it was just hellish. And there's two of them that are just burned into my mind and one of them was, uh, uh, a Muslim marching through the streets with a head of a Christian on a pole and a cop is patting him on the back giving him a big thumbs up mm. and another one a, a boy maybe he was eight years old I thought of my own boys you know but eight years old and he had just been decapitated and the color was still in his face and his eyes were open and that happened a lot that decapitation just like you saw in the Middle East with ISIS because it's in the Quran they, it says to do that so all that to say, though, what's happened is that historically this has been Islam and there's been great waves of jihad. And Muhammad was a, the best you could say, you would say he was a warlord and he didn't have many followers uh, until after about 10 years when he said God gave him this revelation that they could go on jihad and they could attack people who resisted Islam or didn't accept it. And they can take your money and your wives, your gold, all of it and do whatever they want with it. And when that doctrine came in, that was very popular and it attracted quite an element. And so between the time, that time and his death, they had conquered most of Saudi Arabia. And then after, that was kind of the first wave of jihad. And then after that, from his death, maybe up until about 1400, they spread out widely and they went all the way into India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. And you can read Muslim accounts. These aren't historians. These are Muslim accounts of the kings who were going out and pillaging and killing. And the deaths are massive. I mean, you think about the masses of people in India. And they said there were too many. We couldn't kill them all. You know, so they finally stopped. Historians have looked at different ways. They've tried different demographic tools and trying to figure out how many died. Because you read the king's accounts and they're like, it's massive. The historians say it may have been high just in the Indian subcontinent that they killed 70 million. Wow. And then Islam kind of went to sleep. And then that event in Indonesia signaled the new wave, the third historical wave of jihad 
of historical large world uh, wave of jihad. And that's what we're living in. So all that work that the Saudis and the Gulf states were doing, planting radical movements, radicalizing moderate Muslims, and uh, building terror groups, that's all going on. Now we see the fruits of it. And it's everywhere at once. You see ISIS, you see the Brotherhood, you see Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, and you can go around the world. There's movements are everywhere. So Wow. I mean, it, it, I think you hear numbers like 70 million. You hear it in history. Um, and, and that sometimes could just be like a, a trivial fact that we hear. And I thought, um, and I, when you share these stories earlier about these couple individuals, one, a personal friend that you got to yeah. know, you know, these people were, you know, killed just because of their faith, not for anything else. And I thought you could just maybe, if you don't mind sharing with us, um, a couple stories about men or women who were faithful um, to their call to follow Christ and yeah. what that was, what that looked like. Yeah. yeah, I think the quote from Lenin, he said, you know, he said, one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. Mm. It's just numbers and it washes over us. And so, Pastor Steve, I think it's always good to you know, yeah. you go back and say, who is the face? Who are, these were yeah. real people. And one of them was a guy named Shabazz Bhatti. And my, uh, the founder of my organization started, he's from Pakistan. He started bringing him into D.C. and to testify and to share with senators and congressmen of the State Department what's going on in Pakistan. And so this guy gained a lot of stature uh, because of that. And so eventually he became an MP back home, a member of parliament, and he became the minister uh, for minorities. So the Christians are a minority. So he was uh, uh, basically the minister of the minorities. And so the founder passed away and I took over and uh, I started to go around with Shabazz in Washington, D.C., as well as back in Pakistan. And Shabazz always told, told me I'm going to be killed. It's just a matter of time. And he was tireless, and he was really courageous in terms of uh, standing up to radical Islam, which is why he knew he'd be killed. It was just a matter of time. And like I said, he was always telling me I'm going to be killed. And when he got closer to the time he actually died, he started separating himself from others because he didn't want them around him because he knew he'd be gunned down. And one morning he went to work and came out of his house, and sure enough, a spray of bullets, and he's gone. Um, another one would be Pastor Oji. He always sticks in my mind. Pastor Oji was in Nigeria, his pastor, and uh, his village was Boko Haram was attacking and coming south. And so he told the congregation, we need to leave and get out. And they did. And then he went back for an elderly sister in the congregation and he was captured and they rounded up everybody and they said, um, you're going to die today unless you turn to Islam. And Pastor Oji's response was to raise his arms up and to start praising God and singing. So I'm going to let you guess who the first guy they chose to make an example of was. And that was, of course, Pastor Oji. And so they brought him into the center and they said, now, Pastor, we're going to give you a chance to live. All you have to do is to turn to Jesus or turn to uh, Islam. And his response, he was singing and praising. And they said, I'm telling you, you're about to go. And they raised the machete. And Pastor Oji looked at everybody and he said, tell my family and my friends that I died well. And that's the story. You know, the, the martyr is usually given the chance to preserve their life. And so many don't. Many do, you know. I don't know what each of us would do under pressure. So many do fold. 
but different ones like Pastor OG and others don't. And it's a real interesting story to think about or exercise to think about why they don't. And it's something that affects me all the time. I see it all the time and I'm writing a book about it. So. You know, um, that just uh, thank you for sharing that. And it's just, uh, I know it's personal. It's um, people you know and loved. And uh, um, for us to hear that, uh, you know, I, I thought really God's hand was on this when, um, you know, we got in touch and you guys are doing a conference in June. The focus in, in the annual conference that you've been doing has been focusing on a different region of the world. And somehow you planned it to do North Korea. Um, and this was uh, a while back. And. You know, now North Korea is in the news every day, right? It's in our face every day. And uh, um, so I think it's um, really God's hand on this and this conference that's coming up. But, you know, uh, we, we have images and we've seen little documentaries and this and that about life in North Korea and how hard it is. But, uh, you know, maybe just one, snip, one angle of it, maybe you could touch upon and share with us. You know, if you are a Christian in North Korea, you follow Jesus. What is life like? And I, from what I know, you know, when Christianity first was sent and missionaries went, I mean, it started in North Korea and, and it spread. Yeah. And uh, but, you know, if, if right now, if there is a Christian couple, you know, how do, what's life like for them? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. It's a very strange world. I went, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And I can't really meet with anybody in there. It'd be a death sentence if I picked out somebody to meet with them. They were Christian. But if you're a Christian, and you're discovered, you are, there's a 70% chance you're gonna die. If, and if there's uh, any real sense that you're a Christian as opposed to getting caught with a Bible, getting caught with a Bible is one thing. So a Bible's contraband, you could be selling it, but if you have an interest, that's when they're gonna be all over you. And you're either killed outright or you go to the camps. And you guys I'm sure are familiar with the idea that they have a policy where you know, if you're the one being arrested, they're going to take your kids and they're going to take your parents too. And they're going to root out this disease that's in the culture. And when you go to these camps, they're massive. There's 16 main ones. Now there's plenty of places you could be in jail, in prison, et cetera. But the camps, there's 16 of them. The biggest is as big as LA. And the only way I can say what these places are like is that um, it's Satan has free reign to do whatever he wants there. I mean, it's hellish. It's satanic. And, you know, I remember, so last August I started interviewing a bunch of defectors and one of the guys had been in the camps and he had been a member of the party, uh, but then fell out of favor. And this is just completely normal. It's like the mafia. They just devour each other and off he goes to the camp, but he eventually got out. And this is a bright guy, and I asked him, I said, are you familiar, have you read um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago? And famous book on the account of the prison system in the Soviet Union. And there's a lot of similarity. It's just Marxist society. It's, it's just satanic. And they devour people. They create these massive prisons and machines, and they feed people into them. And they're ground up. And so I asked this brother, I said, are you familiar? Have you read that book? He says, I have read that book. I said, is it similar? He says, no, it is infinitely worse. Mm. There is no comparison. And you read these accounts and the, the idea I get is I think about Revelation, you know, when there's one world government and there is, um, you know, you can't purchase, you can't do anything. You're watched all the time. And that's, that's what it's like. There is another defector, her father I was speaking with and her father you know, as a Christian. And most of the time you're going to be, have to be very careful what you share with your children until they get to a certain age. 
And uh, but he always told her, he said, it's just a matter of time. You know, the government's going to find me. But, you know, he was going to secretly do work and be a light and uh, be in love with Jesus until the end. But he knew he couldn't turn. He knew what was happening and what was going to come. And uh, another defector, um, if, if you know any defectors faces, you probably know Hyun So Lee. Yeah. She was in TED Talks, who seven million views on TED Talks. She's going to be at the conference. And she said, this is a very common phrase. She said, you know, my mother always told me that the, the walls have ears and the fields have eyes. And there's a complete spy network throughout the whole society. So it's not just the police or the people, the professional spies, all the culture, everyone's spying on each other and reporting. Everyone lives by fear. Everyone has got a knife to their neck and is, will do anything to survive. You can imagine how that twists society you know, constantly there's no trust between husband and wife. There's no trust. You've got to keep all so much of your life becomes internal and hidden and uh, it's extremely dangerous. So there's no regular church. It's, you know, there might be some trusted friends and you have a church, maybe two or three couples. That'd probably be about it. Wow. It's very dangerous. I mean, it, it, those are things we can't even fathom, you know, because we're we publicly share our faith and our, our children's faith as they grow up, and we're proud of that. And uh, boy, this, that anguish that a person would have. Um, I know we have a conference coming up. Um, it's going to be held um, down the street at Saddleback Church um, on um, June 2nd and 3rd. And uh, just it, it's um, you know really neat about all the people who are the people in uh, in the government and Francis Chan and Rick Warren, all these people that are going to be part of this. Uh, and maybe you could encourage us one last word is, you know, we live in this, you know, all of us live in this Orange County bubble. You know, our concerns are, you know, uh, you know, what, what's the, you know, shortest way to get to work without hitting traffic. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's real mundane, simple things. And, um, we as though as Christians, you know, what, what do we learn from this and what, what should we do about this? And maybe you could give us a word of encouragement um, as we wrap up. Yeah. yeah. So the conference, Steve, you're touching on, uh, just so you know, uh, if you're looking at this conference, you might look at it through a political lens. But we started this back in August before Trump was elected. And it's just been weird for us because all I know is I was interviewing these defectors and, and praying and I felt the Lord pushing us to, to do the conference on North Korea and that his bride would be free soon. I just kept feeling that. And um, so anyways, we start planning for this conference and then in probably the craziest election maybe in our history, Trump is elected. One of the first things he's saying is no more with North Korea. And it's like, you know, we're, let's go Duke. We're going to put it up and we're going to go mix it up in North Korea. That's what it sounds like. And, you know, it's a dangerous game they're playing. But you look at it, what's happening, and we're just curious because I felt the Lord pushing. You know, I told my staff, I said, I can't bet the house on this, but I really think the Lord's pushing us this way. And then you see this news cycle and everything. And then it's a weird thing when you're preparing a conference, you know, there's nothing at first. And then all of a sudden, all these senators, congressmen, Francis Chan, Saddleback, Rick Warren, every, everyone starts wanting to be part of it. And you're like, the Lord's doing something. And that's the only thing I want to say to people, the Lord's doing something. And North Korea, when it falls, it's going to fall. I don't know if it's, you know, like right now or in five years, but it's coming to an end. And when it falls, it's going to be the greatest gospel opportunity, the second greatest in the last hundred years. Soviet Union was the first. 
but it's going to be massive and the church is unprepared. But here's a big, so we're going to get together and part of the deal is we want you to hear from lots of different ministries on how to get involved, how to get the gospel in, how to work, help defectors, etc. A lot of practical work. But what we're trying to do is bring leaders of government together, political leaders as opposed to, uh, you know, so people who are elected government leaders and then staffers. Um, but then we bring leaders of the church and we bring pastors and we bring the church and we bring ministries together. So it's not an ICC conference. We're trying to bring everybody who's doing good work on North Korea so the church will engage and hear and be brokenhearted. But here's the secret agenda in what I'm always trying to do and what the Lord's continually impressing upon me. And it's the message of the persecuted church. And the message of the persecuted church is what happens in your life if you're, if you're in a persecuted country is that anything of value that you have is stripped away. So maybe you have a good job and you take pride in that and your education, well, that's gone. You can't get a good job, you know? Mm. So maybe you're, maybe you're an engineer. Well, next thing you know, you might be sweeping the streets. And your wife and your kids, they could be taken from you. In Islamic countries, they'll take your wife and kids. Or they'll take your health, they'll break your bones, they'll break your body, break your mind. So all those things we hold of value, our wealth, our, our, maybe our self-confidence, our popularity, all the things we take uh, pride in and gain some measure of strength from is all stripped away. You know, you're a, a loser with a capital L. You're in a danger to society. You, um, you're a pariah. And so what happens is many then leave the faith. You know, you count the cost and you say, you know what, this isn't worth it. And yet many stay the course and say, I don't care what the cost is. I have to have Jesus and I can't walk away. And that's a church he can use. And but he's always using pain, the pain of persecution to break this outer man. All those things we take, uh, we get self-worth from, we get strength from are stripped away. And so the outer man has to break. This is the message of the persecuted that all your treasure like a poker game, has to go into the center of the table. And you have to give up on the world. And you have to say, I have to have Jesus, if nothing else. So each of us has plenty of struggles in our life. We have health, marital problems, money problems, um, friendship problems. I mean, it's just always there. And these things are always being used by the Lord. He always wants to use them to draw you closer in and honestly to break this outer man. Watchman Nee called it the outer man. And he said, you know, our main problem, it's not our habitual sins, you know, it's that he's not the treasure. And because of that, God's spirit, which is the only hope for you, for me, for your friends, for the society, the only hope is God's spirit. He's invaded this earth. And when he is released, he can do so much. You think about it in your life when he has power over you, when you yield power to him and give him a free hand. It's amazing. His presence is so sweet. And that's what needs to happen. But we hold him encased inside. And so this outer man needs to break. And that's the teaching of the persecuted church. That's the, the beauty of it and why the church grows under persecution. It's a transformation that happens over time through these great pressures or quickly in prison. Again, you're either going to wash out or you're going to give up on the world and say, God, only he is my treasure. You know, it's that when the waves are coming across the deck of the ship and you're going to get washed over, the only thing you can do is hold on to the mast. And that's where we all need to be. That's not weakness. That's just, that's just our direction in life. But that's my hidden agenda in everything I do. It's like the Lord, I'm no super Christian. I'm just like you. You know, we're all stumbling along and trying to do our best. 
But I keep seeing these examples of incredible examples of pure devotion at, in the midst of great cost. And so we want revival. So we're, we have an agenda. We want to bring the gospel into North Korea. We're going to show you practical ways this conference. We're bringing political leaders. But at the same time, we want revival. We want the message of the persecuted to come into our hearts and to turn more of our life over to Jesus. That's a, the hidden agenda. Wow. That's, um, that's so good, you know, and that's, uh, you know, the, the, the stories that Jesus tells about the man who finds a treasure, the, mm -hmm. you know, or the pearl of great price and sells mm -hmm. everything. And, mm. um, you know, um, so the conference is coming up. Um, we do have a, a, a short video and we're going to segue that into our message. Pastor John's going to give us a short message to tie all this together because I really felt like Philippians 1, as we were going through it, and this, what's happening here, is really was what God is speaking to us. And so, um, uh, and if you, all the info's there, and you could, if you have any questions about the conference, it's, it's on the website, on the flyers as well. Or you could um, talk with Pastor John if you want something more specific. Um, but um, yeah, just Jeff, I wanted to thank you for the good work and uh, we look forward to uh, the conference and uh, what you shared with us. And so let's give them a hand and we'll take a look at thank the Thank you video. guys, bless you.